brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. We're totally booked. Rock and roll! Well, I think I'll leave you to your reading. Little Hands says it's time to rock and roll. Rock and roll We are totally booked. Welcome back to the Booked on Rock podcast. Bookedonrock.com, the website. Subscribe, give the podcast a five-star review wherever you listen. I'm Eric Senich. Great to have you back. We've got Peter Gallagher as our guest this week to talk about his new book, Warren Zevon, Every Album, Every Song. Bruce Springsteen called him one of the great, great American songwriters. Jackson Brown hailed him as the first and foremost proponent of song noir. And Stephen King once said that if he could write like him, he would be a happy guy. The list of artists that lined up to appear on Warren Zevon's records include Springsteen, Neil Young, Bob Dylan, David Gilmore, and Emmy Lou Harris. So how is it that most people, if they have heard of Warren Zevon at all, know him only as that werewolves guy? This book goes beyond that solitary hit single to examine all aspects of Zevon's multifaceted five-decade career, from its beginnings in the slightly psychedelic folk duo Lyme and Sibel, through to his commercial breakthrough in the late 70s with Excitable Boy, his critically acclaimed late 80s comeback, Sentimental Hygiene, his decline into cult obscurity, and his triumphant, heartbreaking final testament, The Wind, released just prior to his death in 2003. Along the way, the reader will discover one of Rock's consummate balladeers, as well as a cast of characters including doomed drug dealers, psychopathic adolescents, outlaws of the Old West, BDSM fetishists, ghostly gunslingers, an unfeasibly large assembly of apes, and yes, lycanthropes unleashed on the streets of London. Peter Gallagher is the author of Mark Boland, Tyrannosaurus Rex, and T-Rex, Every Album, Every Song, a previous volume in Sonic Bond's On Track series. He's a regular contributor to Shindig magazine, and his fiction has appeared in Writing Magazine and The London Reader. His next book will be Kiss in the 1970s, also for Sonic Bond. He joins us from his home in Glasgow, Scotland. To hear a playlist of Warren Zevon, including the songs we talk about in this episode, you know what to do. Just head over to the show notes page. 
Peter, thank you for joining us. You are all the way in Glasgow, Scotland. Very cool. Yes, good to meet you, Eric. Thanks for inviting me along. Very happy to be here and to talk about Warren Zevon. Yeah, this I was saying before we started recording, I, of course, I knew Warren Zevon's work, the hits, the stuff that's on the radio, but I really needed to dig deeper into his catalog. This gave me the reason, the excuse to do it, and I'm glad because there's some great stuff that he recorded that maybe a lot of people don't know about, so we'll get to all of that. But take us back to the moment you became a Warren Zevon fan. You talk about it in the introduction. A Friday evening, October 1978 in Renfrew, Scotland. It was 1978 and it was in October. I can place it quite perfectly in my mind. And at the time, my family had not long moved from Clyde Bank to Renfrew. So as a result, my brother would go see his mates in Clyde Bank. These are two towns outerlying Glasgow and, and central Scotland. Anyway, my brother would go visit his mates in Clyde Bank. And one thing that was always common is he'd reappear on the Thursday evening with borrowed albums. And on this particular Thursday evening, he came home with three albums, which I only discovered on the Friday. Now, as I say in my introduction, the third of the three is forever forgotten. I would love to know what it is, just out of sheer curiosity's sake. But I clearly didn't have enough curiosity at the time to play it, and therefore that's why it's forgotten. The second was Excitable Boy by Warren Zevon, an artist I was totally unfamiliar with. I'd never heard the name. But the one that caught my attention initially was Running On Empty, Jackson Brown. I had heard the Pretender album, was a big fan of that album, and at the time, or just a month or so previously, Jackson Brown had had his only UK hit with a cover of Zodiac's song, Stay. While I was playing the Jackson Brown album, the cover of Excitable Boy kept catching my eye. And for people listening, I'll make an attempt at briefly describing the cover. It's just a close crop shot of Warren Zevon's face. He's looking very much angelic, like a choir boy. But the longer I was looking at it, the more sinister he was becoming. You know, those eyes followed you around the room. The curl was, the, the lips were curled into as a smile or a sneer. Uh, and he'd gone from choir boy to psychopath, in my imagining, within the space of a couple of Jackson Brown songs. So while Jackson was still singing away, I got up, flipped the album over, and was immediately struck by some of the song titles. Johnny Strikes Up the Band was the first track. What an amazing title for an album, as a song to open an album. There was also Werewolves of London. Now, this had got a lot of radio play in the UK, but I hadn't heard it when I later talked about the album, you know, the following Monday to friends at school. They were all familiar with Warren's even via Werewolves of London, but somehow it passed me by. And as a big fan of the old Universal Horror movies, I knew I had to listen to that song. But the one I remember catching my eye the most was called Roland the Headless Thompson Gunner. These song titles were just so intriguing to me. But Roland the Headless Thompson Gunner, I couldn't even imagine what type of song is that. What genre of music is a song with that title possibly going to be in? So I'm afraid Jackson Brown quickly got taken off the turntable and on went Warren Zevon. And that was it. You talk about the music. It's, as you write, it's song noir. I want to ask you if you could give us a brief background 
on Warren, the story of his parents, much like a Warren Zevon song. When and where is Warren born and raised, and who are his parents? His father is William Zevon. He was born in Kiev in Ukraine in 1902, if memory serves me right, but left when he was only two years old when his parents emigrated to the States. They settled in, I think it was Brooklyn, it was one of the areas in New York anyway, but when his father, who was called Stumpy, was a teenager, he set off to Chicago. And this was the Chicago that was still very much in the grip of Al Capone. You know, I often heard Warren Zevon describe his father as a gangster, and I always wondered if he was just kind of bombing him up a wee bit. It turns out he actually was a gangster, and he hung around with Mickey Cohen and served as best man to Mickey Cohen's wedding in 1940 or thereabouts. After Chicago, he did move west, and he did open a series of carpet stores. Now, how serious that was as a business, it could well have been. I have absolutely no idea. It's possible it was just a front. But he did open a chain of carpet stores. And in one of them, in Fresno, he met Beverly. Beverly was Warren's even's mother. William was 42 at the time. Beverly was 21. Beverly had a strict Mormon upbringing. And her parents certainly didn't approve of Mr. Zevon sniffing around her daughter. But they very quickly went off to elope to Chicago and got married. And it was, I think, and I'm, obviously I don't know these people, it's all based on research, but it was a troubled or stormy relationship. And it did, result, however, result in the birth of Warren Zevon, 1947. But there is, as an example of how troubled the relationship was, a couple of examples. Number one is when he got married, Stumpy was an older man who was maybe set in his ways. So he, he would disappear for nights or more than nights playing card games. I don't know if that's a euphemism for some of his other activities, but certainly on one occasion playing card games is correct. So he still very much kept his bachelor ways. But uh, Christmas Eve, and sometime in the 1950s, he won at cards, he won a piano that he brought back to the house as a present for his son. And I think Warren was maybe around about eight or nine. William had spent all night gambling. Beverly and Warren wake up the next morning and there's William with this piano that he's won in a card game, a Pickering piano. Beverly doesn't want it in the house at all. She calls it a headache machine or some other such description. And it is getting quite verbal, stumpy about getting it out of the house. And his reply is to pick up the carving knife that was awaiting the turkey and hurl it at his wife's head. And thankfully, it missed. And she stormed off and went and stayed with her parents. And eventually, Stumpy left the house and the piano got to stay. But I think that one action is, well, I don't know your upbringing, but I don't know anyone that's ever had one parent throw a knife at another parent. Stormy is probably underselling it. Uh, yeah, incredibly, they seem to have stayed together. Less incredibly, Beverly's parents never accepted William, but they do seem to have stayed together. There was periods of separation, but they always seemed to come back together. And they never seemed to settle. They seemed to travel around 
mainly by now in the West Coast, which brought, which is what eventually brought Warren to Los Angeles, which is where he was ultimately going to base himself for the for the rest of his life. One thing to know for the readers is that this book goes through Warren's 12 studio albums in order of recording, so not in order of release. Yeah. So, yeah, let's start yes. with the, the first Sessions. That's the name, released in 2003, but recorded in the mid-60s. This is Warren's folk pop duo project, Lime and Sibel. How does he team up with Violet Santangelo? That was just through me to the horror at school. And the connection, apart from both being into music, but the connection that she was also from Chicago. So they were both at a school in Los Angeles at the time. They were both new to the school and they were both from Chicago. So there was a certain commonality that led to a link between them. And they just started performing together. And it was a very low-key beginning. You know, I don't think there was any great future plan for it. Certainly in the research I've done, there's nothing that suggests there was there was any idea that they would go out and conquer the world or anything like that. But it just so happened that they played to Violet's friends and family, and amongst them was someone that worked at White Whale Records. And this unnamed person, I have tried to find out who it was, basically liked what he heard and he got them signed to White Whale. And White Whale were a they were a pretty successful independent record label at the time. I mean their big artists at that time were the Turtles and the Turtles were enjoying they hadn't quite reached their, the the apogee of their success, but they were certainly a successful band. So they went from playing house parties and family get togethers to releasing their first single within a matter of months. And the single charted. I think 65 or thereabouts in the national charts it got to. But, you know, when when you consider that it was a very much impromptu, ad hoc, flung together thing, it is quite an incredible achievement to have got to that position in the first few months of being in existence. Unfortunately, though, I think Mr. Zeevan is already a wee bit unreliable. I think he's already a wee bit too well acquainted with alcohol. So it was going to be the first of many false starts for him. His career seemed to be a series of starts and stops. And although the Lyman Sabell story is very much a, you know, almost a footnote of his career, it is nonetheless where his career started. It is where he had his first success, really quite rapidly. But it's also where he had his first, not failure, but disillusionment. He, he maybe received his first disillusionment almost equally as rapidly. Lyman Sabell lasted a couple of singles with the personnel of Warren's Even and Violet D'Angelo. But Warren's alcohol intake hadn't endeared him to White Whale and they basically chucked him out of his own band and got someone else in, Wayne Irwin, who is a really, again, very much a footnote. He played guitar in early Monkeys records, so he became the new Lime and teamed up with Violet D'Angelo, released one single, I think, only, without Zeevan, went nowhere, and that was essentially the end of Lime and Sabelle. Maybe one thing worth mentioning, I think when Warren's even 
was into something, he really got into something to maybe sometimes an obsessive degree. And we see that manifesting for the first time with Lyme and Sabelle. He took the name Lyme from an aftershave. Violet D'Angelo took the name Sabelle from a movie, Sundays with Sabelle. But Wands even took the name Lyme from an aftershave. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. It's spelled L-Y-M-E, but he took the lime as in the colour, lime green colour, to an extreme, and that's how he dressed. His suits would be green, his shorts would be green, he even painted his apartment walls green. So he really oh, became, yeah. and this is probably jumping ahead too much, but when you get to his later life, he did only dress in grey. He flipped open his cupboard, and it would have grey shorts. He flipped open the drawer, and it would have grey t-shirts. So it might have been a, it might have been a, a signal of something greater rather than just a fad a wee bit, like OCD or something like that. Yeah. So was that a Stevie Nicks, Lindsey Buckingham type thing? Were they in a relationship? As far as I can make out, again from research, there was no relationship. They were friends. Just happened to straddle two years, but really, one's even's involvement was over and done with within a matter of months. But no, there was no, as far as I can make out, there was no romantic relationship. Again, maybe a bit characteristic of Warren's even. It seems that once he left Lyme and Sabelle, all contact with Violet ceased. Is she still alive? She is, as far as I know. At the time of writing the book, she was. Once Warren's even's illness was announced, she did try to get in touch with him, but as he said, perhaps both accurately and cruelly, it was just her and other people that were trying to get in touch with him at that time, looking for some sort of closure. So he never did get in touch. He never returned her calls. But she went on to perform in theatre, uh, musical theatre mainly. She's an actress, and she goes now by the name of Laura Kenyon. And it's only when you say it out loud that I wonder if it's taken from Laurel Canyon. Yeah. It just seems a wee bit too close. But 
after her turn, Lyman Sabell, that that basically ended her, was the end of her music career as well. Well, it's the beginning of Warren's solo career with his debut studio album, Wanted Dead or Alive, released in April of 1970. Around this time, Warren is writing advertising jingles to pay the bills while writing his own songs. He's also simply known as Zivon, but there was another name he considered. Yeah, he came out of his green phase, which was during Lyman Sibel, and he was thinking about going solo, and he entered his blue phase. And once again, he dressed in blue, he painted his house blue, and he decided that a cool surfer name would be Sandy Zivon. He was intent ever so briefly on trying to relaunch himself, not as Stephen Lyme, but as Sandy Zivon, and not dressed in green, but dressed all in blue, until someone, either himself or maybe someone else in the family, kind of pointed out to him, you do know you, there is already a Sandy Zivon, and he's related to you, he's your cousin. So the, the Sandy's Yvonne didn't last for long. We might be talking weeks, and certainly there was nothing recorded and nothing released under that name. So it was a, a brief adoption of that pseudonym before bidding it forever. And then, as you say, about 1969 is when the Wanted Dead or Alive album was recorded, and it was released the following year, spring of 1970. By that time, he does seem to have, only album, that credits the record to Zeven only. There's no, on the record itself, you never see the name Warren or the initial W. Everything is Zeven, guitars by Zeven, you know, piano by Zevon and so on. So he, he was obviously trying to, again, relaunch himself using a new pseudonym, he which happened to be part of his actual name, of course. But he obviously had this thing about having a stage name at this point. For whatever reason, I mean, Warren Zeven is such an unusual name. You might think it would be suitable for both his real name and stage name, but he seemed quite determined to give himself some sort of on-stage or on-record pseudonym, be it Stephen Lime or Sandy Zevon or just the monogamous Zeven. But yeah, Wanted Dead or Alive was released under that name as his first solo album. It wasn't successful. As even himself said, it was released to the sound of one hand clapping. And it was quickly out of print, only miraculously reappearing after the success of Excitable Boy in 1978. And it's not an album that you would use to introduce anyone to Warren Zevon on. It's strictly one for the purists. I think there's things to enjoy there. But oh my God, there's quite a lot of things that I think are best left alone. However, if anyone's listening to this and are considering exploring Warren Zevon on Spotify or something like that, then Julie's Blues is a song I would like to mention from that particular album. It was written for Julie Livingston, who was his partner at the time and mother of his son, Jordan. And I think it's the first genuine Warren Zevon classic song I love the lyrics, as I say in my book, there's a romanticism to the lyrics that's quite earnest. It's quite, I don't know what the equivalent in America would be, but sixth forum poetry, you know, late school poetry. You'd imagine some someone studying English writing these sort of words. So there is a real romanticism to them. 
and there's projected his love for her as a big thing, talking about himself as a knight in shining armour and so on. And it's all connected to this wonderful country rock tune. And even though there's a real sort of kick-ass beat to it all the way through, it's got quite a fast beat, he does that wonderful thing of managing to put a seam of melancholy all the way through it. So there's a sadness to the song. It's a real paradox. There's a sadness to the song, even though it has this quite boisterous country rock melody. I could not, in all honesty, advise people to seek out the whole album if they're brand new to Warren Zevon, but I'd certainly advise them to seek out the song Julie's Blues, which I do think is the first of his genuine classics. That first album was under the Liberty Records label, while Warren's yep. next is released under David Geffen's Asylum label. It's not until six years later, however... The self-titled Warren yeah. Zevon released May of 76. What was the reason or what were the reasons for that six-year gap between albums? There was a proposed second album with Liberty. And there is one song on Wanted Dead or Live or one tune on Wanted Dead or Live called Fiery Emblems. It's a kind of blues, psychedelic, more music than lyric, and not very good, in my humble opinion, track. and. Warren decided he liked it so much he wanted to do a whole album based around that kind of music. And when Liberty heard what he was producing, they said no thanks and pulled the plug. So that was it. He was quite well pulled, pulled the plug and Liberty had now pulled the plug. So he was out of a job. However, he soon thought that would have been 1970 going into 71 now. But he did soon find a job as keyboard player and also band leader with the Everly Brothers. So he toured with them for a couple of tours, a couple of years. He also toured, at, they had a very fractious relationship, which was very well reported. And they were releasing a comeback album at that time, Stories We Could Tell, and Warren did the musical arrangements for that. He did the tours with them. But because of their fractious relationship, Don and Phil soon went their separate ways. And Warren got a job on the Don Everly solo tour that Don quickly launched after he split from Phil. But it quickly became apparent that not everyone wanted to see a solo Everly brother. The Everly Brothers were very much established as a duo, and famous rightly so, for their fantastic harmonisation. And I'm sure there'd be backing singers and what have you could provide that harmonisation, but it wasn't the same experience. So the tour, the Don Everly solo tour, was a bit of a flop. The Everly Brothers' connection continues, though. He did appear, co-wrote a track called January Butterfly on... One of Phil Everly's mid 70s albums came out in 75, and he also arranged a lot of the tracks on that album. So the Everly brothers kind of kept him working to a degree, but he wasn't getting anywhere with his own career. So he decided on a complete change. By this time, he had met his wife, Crystal, and they decided to head off to Spain. I think he just wanted a complete break. Maybe he was burnt out in LA or maybe he was just frustrated at his lack of success for whatever reason he decided to take him off to Spain and Spain at that time was an unusual choice it's not 
necessarily something that would bring any bells now, but it was still very much Franco's Spain. So it was still a dictatorship. So not necessarily going to be as free in movement as Spain is now or as most European countries are now, but off he went there. And he found employment essentially as a pub singer in a bar called The Dubliner, which was owned by a gentleman called David Lindell, who played a significant part in Warren's story, apart from being his employer in a bar in Spain. So that's what filled in the six-year gap, well, five-year gap. We'll take it up to 75 between Wanted Dead or Alive being released and Warren coming back to America to record what would become Warren's even, his major label debut. And what brought him back to the States? Well, two things brought him out of Spain. One was a job in London with Phil Everly, working on that solo album that I mentioned a wee bit earlier. And the more significant communication he got while in Spain was from Jackson Brown. And Jackson Brown turns out to play a large part in the Warren's Even story. But basically, he was clearly a great champion of Warren's Even's work. I'd obviously got to know him during Zevon's time in, in LA during the late 60s and up to whenever he went to Spain and heard his songs and liked what he heard. And while Zevon was off in Spain, Jackson Brown was shopping Warren's even songs around and took them to, not surprisingly perhaps, took them to the label he himself was on, which was Asylum, which at that, at that time was owned by David Geffen, the guy that founded the label. And David Geffen wasn't convinced by what Jackson Brown was saying. He wasn't convinced by the songs he was hearing. But because Jackson Brown was such an important client, and perhaps also because Asylum was known as a label that gave creative freedom to its acts, he decided to take a punt on the Warren's Even album, but on one condition. And that condition was that Jackson Brown himself produced it. So Jackson Brown managed to get get Warren's even a major label contract, which brought Zeven back from Spain to California and put them both in the studio to start working on what became Warren's even his self-titled major label debut. And what a lineup he brings in too. Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks from Fleetwood Mac, Glenn Fry, Don Henley, J.D. Souther from the Eagles, Phil Everly, Bobby Keys, Bonnie Raitt, Carl Wilson from the Beach Boys. Many critics regard it as his finest album. Do you agree with that? Finest album? Depends what day you catch me on. I think there's a few contenders, but probably four days out of seven, I would go with that album, yeah. I think it is really a fantastic album, and it's got two songs on it that I think rank as his top-level work. It starts, I think, in a very strong high note, and that is with Frank and Jesse James. And that brings us into something that Zeven had already dabbled in. He does have a, a fondness for the myth- mythologizing of the old American West, I think. And he does follow a grand tradition of mythologizing Frank and Jesse James as romantic outlaws, which, again, when I was writing the book, I did a bit research. They certainly were not. They were ruthless killers. But nonetheless, leaving that aside, I think we have this grand widescreen epic 
yet less than four minutes. But they would call it Americana now, a phrase that didn't exist then. You mentioned a lot of very famous names that play on the album, but I think special credit here must go to David Lindley, who provides fiddle and banjo, and will play in many, many of Warren's albums during the years. But he gives Frank and Jesse James what to me sounds like a relatively authentic 19th century Old West sound. The Booked on Rock podcast will return after this. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Like the Booked on Rock podcast? Tell a friend and give us a five-star review wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. So, Peter, what are some of your favorite tracks from that self-titled 76 album? The first of them would be The French Inhaler, which, if memory serves, closes side one. We mentioned Julie's Blues earlier, and that was a song about Julie Livingston, with whom he was having a relationship, and clearly then things were going okay. But the French inhaler is a sign that things have gone haywire since. Their son, Julie and Warren's son, Jordan, calls the lyrics to French inhaler his favourite lyrics that his dad ever wrote. But he also calls them, he calls the song, the French inhaler, and I'm quoting him, the ultimate F.U. dash breakup song because the lyrics are all about the aftermath of the relationship between Zevon and Jordan's mum, Julie Livingston. And if you look at the lyrics, I mean, Zevon is not a silver-tongued devil here. He's really, really scaring. How are you going to get around in this sleazy bedroom town if you don't put yourself up for sale? Uh, it's a really sleazy lyric to be throwing at someone that you've presumably invested several years of your life with. Drugs and wine and flattering light, you must try it again till you get it right. So this is a really acerbic put-down of the, the woman that is ultimately the mother of his son. Yet, amazingly, as I've just said, Jordan's even loved it, but incredibly... So did Julie Livingston. She used to play a lot. She just thought the genius of Warren came through there, both in the music and in the lyrics, even though the lyrics were completely unflattering about her. It is a totally devastating song. And it also it describes, unlike Los Angeles tends to be glamorized, and one thing Warren's even never did was glamorize Los Angeles. It starts here not just in this song, on this whole album, 
is very much an album all about LA and there's not a single song on it that suggests you would ever want to go there. Yeah, it's almost suggesting that it is the den of iniquity or it is the new Sodom or Gomorrah and so on. And part of that comes through here. This is a really bleak portrayal of a relationship. And it happens to be set in a really bleak portrayal of LA, as is, I think, all of the album, with the exception of Frank and Jesse James that opened it. There is a wee bit of a puzzle at the end of the song, there is a lyric that says, that ends with the lyric, the French inhaler, he stamped and mailed her, so long Norman, she said, so long Norman. Yeah, what does that and mean? That, What's he referring to? It's a bit of a mystery. It doesn't follow on naturally from the rest of the lyric. However, there is a clue, he stamped and mailed her, so long Norman, as a play on Norman Mailer. And Norman Mailer at the time had just released a biography of Marilyn Monroe and Julie Livingston's real first name was Marilyn. So who knows? There's maybe some sort of connection there. On a website, on Zeven's own website, Jordan Zeven confirms that Zeven is talking about Norman Mailer with that line. But he does say, I can't tell you the specific reason why. So we might never know what the heck that all refers to. But it does seem such a strange coda to the song. Like I say, there is a link to what's gone before insofar as Marilyn was the name of Julie Livingston's real first name, which ties to the Norman Mailer, Marilyn Monroe biography. But it's all very tedious there compared to what's gone before. So maybe it was just a verbal joke and Zeven liked it, but we are not allowed in on the joke. My favourite song on Warren's Even is Desperados Under the Eaves, the song that closes the album. And I actually think this might be my all-time favourite Warren's Even song. I just think it's an immense piece of music. And there's a version of it on a posthumous release called Preludes, Rare and Unreleased Recordings. It's a different version, and I love that version as well. So... I just think this is a great song that probably I would think great in any version that I heard. And it does take us into that side of LA that isn't glamorous. It is, like a lot of Zeven's work, it is very biographical in nature. And he starts off, he's talking about sitting in the Hollywood Hawaiian Hotel. And that is a place that he apparently stayed in quite a few times. And it sounds lovely, the Hollywood Hawaiian Hotel. But it was essentially, apparently, not much more than a flophouse. He had to step over junkies to get to his doorway and, you know, spent his time chatting with the winos sitting on the steps of the Hollywood to buy an hotel. So it was far from a, a, a salubrious environment. But that's where he found himself sometimes. He was a drunk at the time. He, his alcohol problem was a problem. And... Essentially, Desperado's Under the Eaves, I think, is just a moment in time of his life, which at the same time captures this great image of LA. It's almost anti-romantic, or if romantic can have a, a sleazier side, then it's got that element to it. As I say in the book, an earlier song, Carmelita, is very much a junkie's lament, but Desperado's Under the Eaves, is a song of the alcoholic, but it's also the song of an unrepentant alcoholic. 
later is even more confronted his alcoholism. He's a long way away from that there. He still revels in his alcoholism. He's still under the impression that he subscribes to the, the viewpoint of F. Scott Fitzgerald and Ernest Hemingway, that, you know, that substance abuse can lead to stimulation, can lead to creativity and so on. So he's very much an alcoholic that's reveling in being an alcoholic. And Desperado's under the eaves finds us seeing the drunken ones even sitting in the Hollywood to wine hotel thinking about all these misfortunes, like you won't have money to pay the bill, you won't find a girl to understand them, and so on. Uh, and then he latches on to the sound of the air conditioner. So we go through this litany of woe, and then he latches on to the sound of the air conditioner in the song, and begins to hum along. And we get the Sid Sharp strings coming in eventually. We also get Various people, Jackson Brown, of course, Billy Hinch, Carl Wilson from the Beach Boys, Jay Winding, who had also played as a touring member of the Beach Boys. They all join in in the hum. And then we get this wonderful delivered phrase, look away down Gower Avenue. And we just get, I don't even think it's even that delivers that. I think that might be Billy Hinch or Carl Wilson, I think, delivers it. Sings this line, look away down Gower Avenue while everyone else is still doing the humming and the Sid Sharp strings come in. And it just keeps building and keeps building and keeps building. And it goes from this really, really bleak song about a drunk and desperate straits to this almost glorious hymnal. And it's just an amazing metamorphosis within one song, I think. I really do think it's a fantastic piece of music. And as an aside, David Letterman was a big Zevon fan. We may or may not get to that later on. He was a great supporter of Zevon. But he always wanted Zevon to play Desperados Under the Eaves and one of the many times he guested on Letterman's show. And for whatever reason, Zevon never did. He wanted the full orchestra or what have you. He wanted to recreate the studio version, I don't know. But he never, ever did. So, unfortunately, David Letterman's wish went unfulfilled. So David Letterman, basically, that was his favorite Warren Zevon song as well. Warren Zevon, every album, every song, it's out now through Sonic Bond Publishing. Author Peter Gallagher with us. Now we get to Warren's third studio album, Excitable Boy, which is released in January of 1978. His commercial breakthrough remains the biggest seller of his career, certified platinum for a million sales, reached the top 10 on Billboard, and an interesting decision by Jackson Brown on this album couple of songs that he pushed aside for the previous album he now decides to use on this one. And does that decision pay off? Excitable Boy and Werewolves of London. Yeah, so when the Warren's Even album was released, Jackson Brown was intent in presenting Warren as a world-class songwriter. And though he liked Werewolves of London, and though he liked Excitable Boy, he felt perhaps it was too, uh, it didn't present world-class songwriter. At plenty, uh, they were good tunes. And he wanted to get the literate Desperados Under the Eaves writer or the literate French Inhaler writer across in the debut album. But Jackson Brown underwent a crisis of confidence. The debut album went nowhere. Didn't do much better than Wanted Dead or Alive did six years earlier. And we also had another problem insofar as Warren had used up a well of solo songs. So he was now reliant on co-writes, which both Excitable Boy and Werewolves of London are. 
So now Jackson Brown decided he would include them. Perhaps he called it wrong. Perhaps these are the songs that would work. They weren't quite in tune with the musical landscape because the musical landscape was changing. There was disco you know, taking hold, well, very much had taken hold by 1978. Punk had already evolved into new wave by 1978 so these were certainly not punk or disco songs but maybe they would be more in keeping with the new musical landscape than the likes of desperados under the eaves sort of classic singer songwriter material so they were brought out they were the big guns that were brought out for excitable boy to the extent one of them lends the album its title and another co-write which was on the back burner is the one I mentioned the way back at the beginning of our chat was Roland the Headless Thompson Gunner, which is even co-wrote with David Lindell, who was that bar owner in Spain who had been a former mercenary. So here we've got three songs, all bloody and gory in their own way, even if some of them are a bit comedic in their musical presentation. Uh, so a complete change. We've got mayhem now rather than you know, the dim lights of Warren Zevon's view of LA, it's all uh, fly colour lights and so on. That CD view of his Los Angeles is kind of thrown out the window now, and we're just going for made up story songs with bloodthirsty characters on them, and they hope that works. So, those are the, oh, I can't remember the guy's name. I mentioned him in the book. He calls them the Terror Trilogy. Right. I wanted to ask you about know. that. The Terror Trilogy. Yeah, what, Werewolves, Excitable Boy, and Roland the Headless Thompson yeah. Gunner, all three of them. What's the connection between all three? Why are they known as the Terror Trilogy? George Flusquetis, and apologies to George if I mispronounced his name, but in his book, Warren's Even Desperado of Los Angeles, it's he that identifies those three songs as a Terror Trilogy, and I liked it, so I decided to carry it forward. You know, something only becomes established if people carry it forward. So I like George's take on those three songs. And wouldn't it be nice if people that were into Warren's even forever referred to those three as the Terror Trilogy? But the connection between them is just that, well, there's murder in them all. You have the werewolves of Werewolves of London. Now, Jackson Brown, once interviewed, say he saw the werewolf as a metaphor for a really well-dressed, ladies man a sort of gigolo but when you've got lines like you better stay away from him he'll rip your lungs out Jim it's kind of hard to see that as a metaphor for a gigolo um, I think sometimes a, were a song about a werewolf is really just a song about a werewolf uh, and the great line little old lady get mutilated late last night fantastic piece of alliteration as I say in the book I think it's possibly the finest use of alliteration in a pop song you know, I've heard it how many years ago now, 40-odd years ago, and I don't think I've come across anything that competes with it. So, yeah, I think Werewolves of London might really be about werewolves. The title track is about a killer, quite a sick character that goes to the junior prom and kills his, promptly kills his date, but compounds his crime by then taking her home. And then when he's released, presumably fully cured, many years later, 10 years later, he go, digs up her bones and makes a cage. So there's a degree of terror in that character there. And Roland, 
well, there's a human terror in the, the nature of the mercenaries and the nature of the war and so on. But at the same time, we do have this ghostly avenger out for blood. So I, I can see why Plasketus came up with the terror trilogy for those three. There really is a place called uh, Leho Fuchs, which is included in there really is a place yeah. Fuchs. Indeed, or there was a place called Leho Fuchs. Sadly, it's gone now. It closed in 2008. You will see in the book, and you will have seen it yourself by now, Eric, there is a business card for the establishment in the, in the picture section. And I picked that up myself when I went to Leho Fuchs. Couldn't tell you how many times I've been to London, but it took me many, many times before it dawned on me. Ah, let's go to Leho Fuchs. So off I went, and there it was, just off Leicester Square in London, big entertainment area in London. And they had the vinyl album cover for A Quiet Normal Life, which was Asylum's best of Art Warren's even album that they released once he left the label. And they had that in the window and they had an article about Warren's even. So they were aware of the connection and they certainly quietly promoted the connection as well. And yes, when I went, I had I did indeed order I think it was a standard-sized dish of beef chow mein, but it was beef chow mein all the same. <laughs> nice. There's another classic from this album we can't forget about, Lawyers, Guns, and Money, written on the back of a cocktail napkin in 15 minutes. This is a great story. Can you talk about how this song came about? A real-life incident. Yeah, real-life incident, and really written on the back of a napkin in 15 minutes. Warren was on a holiday, he was away to Hawaii, he seemed to like going to Hawaii quite a lot, he would revisit it many times, but here he was in Hawaii, and he was with a colleague from Asylum Records, and while they were in Hawaii, presumably having a lovely time, they got talking to someone, this person was essentially trying to coerce them into doing a spot of housebreaking. So they very quickly retracted themselves from that situation, but then imagined what it would be like if they went ahead with a housebreaking with this total stranger that started talking to them in some bar, and they start thinking about what would have happened if they'd gone ahead and got caught in the act, and then it became a series of jokes between them. Well, we'll need to write to asylum president, Joe Smith, and when we write write to him, we'll need to ask him to send lawyers. And then the guy he's with, his name was Stein, but I can't remember his first name offhand. He quickly says, oh, and let's also ask him for guns. And then Zeevan quickly responded with, and money. And then Zeevan realised, ah, lawyers, guns and money, what a great song title. And away he went and composed a song right there in the bar in Hawaii on the back of the cocktail napkin. He isn't in Hawaii and he hasn't get talked into housebreakings, even being Zeevan. He goes for that geopolitical thing with that great opening line. I went home with a waitress the way I always do. How was I to know she was with the Russians too? And Zeevan being Zeevan, he loves dropping in hot spots in the world, Havana and the Honduras and so on. So he spins it well away from the Hawaii story. But that's where it started. That's my favorite Warren Zevon song. Have you ever heard Meatloaf's version of it? Rest in peace, Meatloaf. Yes, I have. Just, yeah, well, he does a great version of that. That's from the 90s. I think he did a VH1 Storytellers and he put it on there. Yeah, his voice was perfect um, for it. Oh, absolutely. In fact, when I first heard Zevon in 78, 
matter of hell had come out the previous year. I did think there was a, a, a certain similarity initially. I mean, that then it ended up not being the case. Meatloaf had a far greater range than Warren's even. But they did have that sort of deep-throated ability to growl. So I could see similarities. And it's no surprise, really, that he did ultimately choose to cover a Warren's even song. I think his voice was so suited for so much, so many of his even songs. Heading into the recording of 1980's Bad Luck Streak in Dancing School album, Warren is in a bad way now in terms of his addictions. Jackson Brown, Wadi Wattel remain his friends. They even show up in the studio to contribute on some of the songs, but they can't work with him anymore in a producer role. Can you talk about the backstage incident at a Bruce Springsteen yep. gig? What happened there? Well, as you say, uh, Warren's drinking, and along with it came a confrontational nature. Jackson Brown no longer wanted to produce him, and Waddy Wachtel, who had co-produced Excitable Boy, no longer wanted to produce him. So he even went looking for a producer, and he thought it would be a good idea if maybe he could hook up with Bruce Springsteen's producer, John Landau. So he went to a Springsteen concert, but by this time, being Warren's even, he was totally hammered, and he was totally obnoxious and very troublesome and it basically got to the point where Springsteen himself had to break away from doing his pre-going on stage prep and go and calm Warren's was on down and then get him to his chair which he succeeded in doing but then throughout Zeevan's concert it's never quite said and the various sources I looked at for this story it's never quite said precisely what Zeevan's behaviour was like, except that he was loud, drunk and obnoxious, full of expletives and so on. And this continued even throughout Springsteen's set. And sitting next to him at the time was Jan Wenner, the founder of Rolling Stone. Wenner and Rolling Stone are great supporters of Asylum Records, or were great supporters of Asylum Records, but Wenner made the decision there and then that Zeeman would never appear in Rolling Stone again. So outraged he was by Zeeman's behaviour at this concert. Um, so we don't know exactly what he did, but it's safe to say he was obscene and full of expletives and out of control, which seems par for the course for him from you know mid-70s on. Despite this, Warren still puts out a solid album, reached number 20 on Billboard, what are your thoughts on Bad Luck Streak? Well, before I get to that, there is one weird, strange thing about Warren is he still seems to attract great talent. I don't know if it's the artist in him or if he is genuinely a nice, nice guy at heart and people take that on board and accept that he's maybe by this stage accepted he was he was ill with alcoholism. But incredibly, despite his behaviours that repels people from coming back as producer. It isn't enough to repel them from coming back to play on the album and so on. So, yeah, Bad Luck Street comes out. Yeah, you would never tell that this was the work necessarily of a troubled soul. But my favourites on it, well, I need to say Empty Handed Tart is a real favourite. By now, he's having Crystal have split up. The album came out in 1980. They split up in 1979. I think it was, but certainly before the album came out. And he's missing her. And he is talking about whether he'll be able to carry on without her and so on. 
And it's just a gorgeous, gorgeous, heartbreaking song. And it's made even more lovely when Linda Ronstad comes in with this death chant uh, just about three quarters of the way through. But one's even, you know, he tends to be remembered for werewolves of London more than anything else, but he never tends to get remembered for being a composer of really top-flight ballads. And I do think he was one of the best balladeers in popular music. And it always astonishes me that his work is... We mentioned Meatloaf there, but his work is really not covered very often. And when he's producing material like Empty-Handed Heart, uh, it doesn't even get on any best of ones, even which I find astonishing. But that no one's covered it. I find it quite incredible. Now it doesn't actually need anyone to cover it. I think it, this is the definitive version here. It's his voice. It's a heartbreak in his voice, and it's Ronstad's flawless singing in the desk and uh, you know a ghostly reminder of how good life was for almost like a ghostly version of Crystal reminding how good life was previously. So I think it's a gorgeous, gorgeous song and I do think he was a great balladeer and that is often overlooked. My standout though is actually I didn't do as well as Excitable Boy, but it is a really it's a really good album. I'll go straight to my standout though and that's Bed of Ghosts. I think, again, it's a ballad. It's got a real country take to it. It isn't David Lindley on the steel pedal this time. It's Ben Keith, who played in so many Neil Young records by this point and would appear in so many more. But here we have a real difference between Desperados Under the Eaves, where Zeven is gleeful in his drunkenness to Bed of Coals, which is basically... It's a song about recognising, A, that alcoholism is a disease, and B, it is a disease that is currently killing him. So as I do think it is probably, I don't know how many great songs there are about alcoholism, but it's certainly a complete difference from uh, all the happy drunk songs that Dean Martin and company used to sing. Without any pun intended, this is a real sobering song. And again, Linda Ronstad is part of what makes it. She's joined by J.D. Souther on harmonies, but you really can't make him out so powerful as Ronstad's lyrics, and so strong are they, and it adds to the heartbreak. But outshining all the great players, outshining all the wonderful harmonies by Ronstad and Souther is even himself. This sounds like the voice of a guy that recognises he is a disease, and this disease is killing him. Again, if I can quote the book, the vinyl grooves are reeking of Stolik Naya, which is a brand of vodka, stale Marlboros and utter despair, as he realises that he is too old to die young, but he's definitely too young to die now, which is a quote from the lyrics there. Bedicles is, um, if it's not a juxtaposition, I'll call it a wonderful song about alcoholism, because it doesn't glorify it, it doesn't romanticise it. It's it's like a warning by someone that is suffering from alcoholism. But at one point he says that he will about lying in a bed of nails and he'll feel every needle that will pierce through his heart. When you listen to this song, if you've got any sense of empathy at all, I think you too, the listener, will feel those needles. It's a really powerful anti-alcoholism song. 
you know, as I say, the complete antithesis of little old wine drinker me and songs of that ilk. Uh, T-Bone Burdett is another contributor and indeed co-writer of that particular song. So again, despite his drunkenness, despite his bad behaviour, we are seeing Ron Stad working with him. We're seeing T-Bone Burnett cropping up in this album, Jackson Brown, J.D. Souther, Don Henley. He doesn't appear on the album, but Bruce Springsteen gets a co-write with Jeannie. He's a shooter. So he's even still able to attract the talent, while not at least looking at it through the cold light of 40 years distant, not necessarily being an attractive person himself or not being at an attractive place in his life because of his alcoholism. The Booked on Rock podcast will return after this. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Don't miss an episode of the Booked on Rock podcast. Subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts or just go to the Booked on Rock website, bookedonrock.com, to find a full listing of podcast platforms where you can subscribe and follow. That's bookedonrock.com. Warren follows up Bad Luck Streak with 1982's The Envoy, but here we see Asylum pinching pennies, not backing the album. As a result, doesn't fare well, but you say it's an often overlooked album as a result of that. What are your thoughts on this one? Yeah, again, you get people always talking up the debut, the Asylum debut, or Excitable Boy. And of the four studio albums he did for Asylum, the latter two, Bad Luck Streak and The Envoy, are often forgotten. The Envoy probably more so than Bad Luck Streak because Bad Luck Streak did have a, a minor hit single with the cover of A Certain Girl. But the Envoy, I think, holds its own. I don't like Let Nothing Come Between You. I think it's too twee a song, but that song aside, I think it's all highly listenable to. And again, I think there's some great, great tracks there. Interesting you say that. That was the single, too. The soul single, Let Nothing Come Between You. Yeah, but uh, well, I'm sure you've, real, you've probably come to this conclusion yourself that Often record companies will release something for a single that you yourself would disagree with. You yourself would think, that's not the strongest record from this this album, or that's not the most commercial record or so on. And out of the possibilities in front of them, let nothing come between you. It really it has its supporters. I mean, there is a review on Amazon where the reviewer pulls me up, uh, pulls me to task and says he thinks this is a great song. So fair enough. I mean, the book is, of course, my dissection of Warren's even songs, but let nothing come between you. Never did anything from me in 1982. 
and 40 years later still fails to connect. I was going to go into the Hula Hula Boys. It's a silly lyric. You know, it's a humorous sex romp about a guy going on his honeymoon to Hawaii with his new wife, and she ends up spending her time with the car park attendant or the fat one from the swimming pool to quote the lyrics. So it's a jokey lyric, but what a wonderful, wonderful piece of music. And I never really got into Toto, but listening to Warren's even allowed me to appreciate Jeff Porcaro, not just as a drummer, but as a percussionist. So he really enters the mood of this song. He really tries to conjure up the Hawaiian feel of it. So he, as well as the drums, he's playing Tahitian log drums and pulley sticks. There's Jim Horn playing recorders, giving it a nice cultural flavour. It's just got a lovely, luminous sound to it. You can almost imagine being in Hawaii, listening to, you know, this is a soundtrack for being in Hawaii, if the lyrics weren't so negative in terms of the relationship. Jeff Porcaro of Toto, and we have Steve Lukather of Toto on this album, too. They're both on Let Nothing Come Between You, which, by the way, was about his relationship with actress Kim Langford, who played Ginger Ward on Knott's Landing. And th- this was Landing, a, yeah. a comment that they made to People Magazine, and that inspired some of the lyrics in the song. Yeah, well, even the, the line, she's good round the eyes, which is a lyric in the song, was apparently lifted directly from Jackson Brown's comment when Warren's even says, so what do you think of Kim then? What he said was, she's good round the eyes. Yeah, so with that relationship, Warren's even was still kind of a star at this point. You know, the last album had gone to number 20, so it wasn't a failure by any means. Uh, And Kim Langford was on a roll with her role in Knott's Landing. So all of a sudden, Mr. Even found himself being one of a celebrity couple and mixing with the Hollywood elite allowed him to rub shoulders with the likes of Clint Eastwood and Martin Scorsese, which would have delighted him no end because he was a fan of both as directors, but also Clint Eastwood's work as an actor as well. So from that point of view, it was a good time for him. However, his substance abuse uh, is getting better. His violent behavior is ramping up. I mean, it's a, it got pretty. T- you think about this. This could have been. This could have led to a real tragedy because he he's doing some crazy shooting up his apartment with a forty four magnum. Yeah, fits of rage. Yeah, hitting the vodka hard and heavy. But as you write, salvation was at hand. How does he eventually pull himself out of this dark period? Well, just for the benefit of those listening. There was violent behaviour there, definitely. When he asked his former wife, Crystal, to write his biography, she did it in the form of an oral history. But one thing that Zeevan definitely asked for is that she doesn't pull any punches. And boy, she didn't. So we do have a picture of a, 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 has to be said, an abusive man. I mean, there were instances where there was anger, like a famous one of them shooting out a billboard of... Richard Pryor on Sunset Strip, he's on his hotel across the road and he's firing his gun out the window. Uh, a more famous one or more well-reported one of Crystal waking up in the middle of the night to gunshots and there's Warren in the living room and he's got the cover of Excitable Boy on a chair in front of him and he's blasting away at it, at a magnum, with a magnum. 
And there was instance where Crystal had to call people over, Jackson Brown included, where Zeven had been violent, and she was basically calling, she was crying out for help. And Kim Langford experienced similar situations. She would wake up, be startled by the sound of a gun going off, and this was Warren's even killing cockroaches with a with, with a magnum, uh, not cudgeling them, but actually shooting at them. Or she would come home from work, and the supposedly on his road to sobriety, even would be strung out with his junkie mates, shooting up heroin. And one of the big things was she was invited to sing with Ray Charles at some fundraiser. And though he didn't get physically violent, he was incensed that some actress was invited to sing with the great Ray Charles while he was the rock star, this is his words, and he was the famous singer and so on, and it should be him singing with him. And he just flew off in a, just in a rage. At this point, he was struggling with alcohol big time, but he was winning some battles. But unfortunately, after the poor sales of the envoy, Asylum pulled the plug, and rather cruelly, he read about it in the pages of Rolling Stone, and maybe use it as an excuse, or maybe it was just too big a body blow, but he was trying sobriety out at that time, and he hit the vodka once again. Uh, so this was, we're now at 82 when that album came out, and the next album was a five-year break, Sentimental Hygiene was out in 1987. And between those years, he did indeed find salvation. Two people were responsible for that. He did have a new manager in the shape of a guy called Andrew Slater, who was not of the LA scene, much younger than Warren Zeven and the LA scene that he hung out with, but happened to be a big fan and couldn't believe he, he was involved in a meeting where and, you know, Zeven's artist representation team were considering dropping him, and he couldn't believe that could be the case. I mean, this is Warren Zeven, as far as he was concerned. This is one of America's great songwriters. And as he was arguing his case, he more or less argued himself into the job of becoming Warren Zeven's new manager, which he did. And that was kind of fortunate because Andrew Slater happened to be pals with Peter Buck, who was an R.E.M., he thought, well, here's a good idea. As the 80s, R.E.M. are up and rising. They hadn't quite come the, the huge act. That was one album away. They hadn't quite become the huge act they did become. But why don't a team warns even up with R.E.M. and put an album out with them on it? And with that in mind, they got together in 84, sort of played some dates, minus Michael Stipe, played some dates under the name Hindu Love Gods, Liked it, Zeven and the three guys from our three musicians from REM enough to decide, yeah, we'll, we'll do some songs, we'll work together and produce an album. And that, even though he's initially cynical of getting back on that treadmill again, that kind of inspired Zeven. So Salvation Number Two came from himself. He looked in the mirror, he realised that he was his own worst enemy, and that's who was looking back at him. He realised he'd burnt so many bridges, the only way anyone is going to give him a record contract, the only way anyone is going to treat him seriously at all, is if he does indeed sober up. And he did. Sentimental Hygiene came out in 1987. 
and Zeevan's first full day of sobriety was on the 19th of March 1986. And it was a sobriety that he was going to maintain all the way through until he got the diagnosis that he had cancer that was fatal. So he stayed sober and he stayed working, perhaps as a result of staying sober. And he went into the studio with Peter Buck, Mike Mills and Bill Berry for sentimental hygiene. At least they were the core band. He also had his huge roster of guest musicians playing with him. Uh, Neil Young crops up in sentimental hygiene. I think significantly Bob Dylan crops up. Zeevan himself was a huge Dylan fan. And here's Dylan cropping up playing on the factory, which must have been a huge thrill to Zeevan himself. And you've got many other people. We've got various heartbreakers cropping up. Uh, you've got all the great session players from LA, like Tony Levin. David. Tony Levin, of course. I mainly associate him with, of course, he's had a huge career, but I mainly associate him with Peter Gabriel yeah. and King uh, Crimson. I think he's on the conversion of King Crimson. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Tony Levin, I think he is. Aye. How about Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers? Yeah, unfortunately, my spell on the album credits, but yeah, you know, it's two <laughs> E's instead of E A. But yeah, but I think the biggest surprise on this album, you know, Bob Dylan might be the biggest achievement in Zeevan's eyes, but the biggest surprise is probably George Clinton of Parliament Funkadelic. And he crops up with a couple of his players, like Blackbird McKnight and Amp Fiddler also crop up both just in one track. So again, he's still getting these huge names in. And you say sentimental hygiene, it's inconsistent, but one of his best. If I called it inconsistent, I might be being too harsh. To me, it's only a weak area is the musical side of Detox Mansion. It does nothing for me. I don't think there's a melody there. I don't think it's got a tune. Lyrically, it's great. But tune-wise, it doesn't work for me. And again, that's a personal thing. I do remember when all the re reviews came out for it, every reviewer seemed to love Detox Mansion. I often wondered if reviewers are sometimes hearing the lyrics without hearing the music. And the music, it didn't do it for me. But honestly, almost anything else I think is great. There's some lesser songs, Trouble Waiting to Happen. It's a good song, but... When you put it next to the track, it comes after it, Reconsider Me. Now, they're different songs. One's a rocky song, one's a ballad. But again, Reconsider Me is just a great spotlight, or should have been a great spotlight on Zeevan's work as a balladeer. And it should have been a stepping stone to his work being covered. Now, this one happened to be covered. It was covered by Stevie Nicks. It was later covered by The Pretenders. But they were only ever released well after the fact and as bonuses and box sets. It was even his career, you know, Linda Ronstadt had been such a champion of him doing four covers on her albums at the height of her career. If maybe more people were covering his songs in the 80s, then maybe his career would have been sustained a bit better because the songs are there. I think the talent is there. And Reconsider Me is another great example of his ability to write a ballad. On the same album, you've got The Heartache, another great ballad that's never appeared on a best of. It's never been covered. One of those great mysteries. Why hasn't it been? It's such a good song. But we also have Sentimental Hygiene itself, 
it roars, it's the opening track and it roars to life. You know, it's just, as I say, it's a big bold beast of a song that confidently says I'm back. It's got Neil Young doing not one, but two amazing guitar solos, absolute scorching or blistering or whatever cliche you want to use. Just great, great guitar work from Neil Young. Absolutely selfless. Not just going in and knocking something off. He's going in and giving the song his absolute best work. Dylan does the exact same later on The Factory. Uh, it's just a wonderful opening song. And it was a single. And Virgin, he's now with Virgin, put some money behind it and did a video for it and it did get some airplay. But sadly, it never made it. You've got Boom Boom Mancini, another great song based on the life of Ray Mancini, specifically on his fight in November 1982 against Dooku Kim who unfortunately, due to a result of injuries sustained in that fight, died five days after the fight. Come aboard chorus of Hurry Home Early, Hurry On Home, Boom Boom Mancini's fighting Bobby Chacon. It's just a great pound-along big rock number. Bad Karma is a great song, suitably for its title. Got some sitar on there. Uh, we've got David Lindley. I mean, what instrument can this band not play? Coming back with a Turkish bowed or bowed saz. I just think it has a strong, strong album. It doesn't sound like West Coast album. I don't. I think Warren's even albums never quite sound like West Coast albums, despite often being about LA and despite having so many West Coast based musicians appearing on them. It's the closest he ever got to the sort of 80s college indie sort of feel. And that's largely thanks to the fact he's backed by, a, at that time, an 80s college indie band in the shape of R.E.M. And one of the real standout for me on this album, such a change of pace for Warren's even. I often, when I play it, I double-check the credits, only to find that, yes, it is indeed solely credited to Warren's even but leave my monkey alone. This is Warren's geopolitical song. This is all about the sun going down in the British Empire. You know, he tried a bit of funk back on Excitable Boy with Nighttime in the Switching Yard, and I don't think it worked. But here he tries it again, and this is where we see George Clinton and Blackbird McKnight and the Amp Fiddler playing. And this is where we see Flea. This is a track that Flea appears on. And just what a wonderful, wonderful funk song it is and this too was released as a single actually yeah it was because it even yeah. got a video leave my monkey alone one of six singles there are 10 tracks on this album right. over half of the album released as singles that's right so yeah virgin were really promoting this and incredibly none of them went anywhere the booked on rock podcast will return after this Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? 
they're also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, any Anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. If you're a publisher or author of a book on rock and you want to be on the Booked on Rock podcast, contact us through our website, BookedOnRock.com, or send an email to the Booked on Rock podcast at gmail.com. Well, the seventh studio album, Transverse City, not much different here. He's got another list of big name musicians joining him in the studio october of 1989 we get transverse city jerry garcia neil young david gilmore mike yep. campbell of tom petty's heartbreakers band a concept album what's the album's concept and what inspired it well okay that's esoteric to me eric because i haven't read the material but william gibson's neuromancer novel is definitely there you know, it's often called the first cyberpunk novel, and cyberpunk isn't an area I've, I've explored, but also the novels of Thomas Pinchon or Pinchon are there as well. But I think the other thing that informs Transverse City is the world in 1989. There is a couple of songs that mention the future, but if you look at the lyrics of Transverse City, they really are a snapshot of 1989. So we've got mentions of, you know, consumerism, for example. We've got mentions of perestroika. We've got mentions of holes in the ozone layer. So it really is a snapshot of a certain point in the 20th century history. I haven't read the novelist's works that Zeevan cited. I, and I'm sure they figure in there, in fact, the title track, Transverse City, I assume ties very much into something like Neuromancer or Thomas Pinchon. You know, his mentions of shiny Mylar Towers and all-night trauma stands and endless neon vistas. And there's also a song a wee bit later on, A Long Arm of the Law. At the time, it talks about a, a war in Paraguay in 1999. So, of course, that was 10 years in the future. The title track in Long Arm of the Law aside, I see these very much as being 1989 songs, songs of where we were at that time, in the, not just in the Western world, because with turbulence we are looking east. And amongst all that, of course, we have another classic, even ballad in the shape of Nobody's in Love this year. This album, I would say, is probably one of his most inconsistent. There's not an obvious connection, despite being a concept album. The only concept I can see is it's a window on the world of 89, but there's some real odd songs that are ideas of songs, I think, rather than full-fledged songs. So that leaves it possible being as one of his most... In fact, I do think I call this his most inconsistent major label album. However, it does have a lot to love, so I want to focus mainly on the positives. 
the big song for me, I have mentioned Nobody's in Love this year. I do think that's one of a typically supreme Zevon ballad. But I've got to go for Splendid Isolation. That would probably sit in my Zevon top five. It's just a wonderful, wonderful song. It was released as a single. Again, it went nowhere either here or in the US. Again, it's a subject matter. Zevon is kind of casting his eye on the famous who wanted to be famous, but when they become famous, want to be isolated, want to be away from the people that make them isolated. And these two examples he uses are George O'Keefe and Michael Jackson. There's a verse in there ded- dedicated to Michael, who famously at the time was getting entered to Disneyland when it was shut, so they didn't need to share the park and the rides with anyone else. And of course, that's exactly the sort of fame that Zevon Skewering here. You become so famous that you feel you can no, no longer operate as a normal person. So you leave New York if you're George O'Keefe and you go and get yourself away into your New Mexico ranch far away from civilization. Or if you're Michael Jackson in more modern times, you make arrangements with Disney to let you into their theme park when it's close to the public. And then he talks jokingly, surely by now, because he must by now realise he's never going to get a break or his break was Excitable Boy, and that's 10 years in the past. But then the last verse is him comparing himself to those people and talking about sitting down in the cellar and putting tinfoil up in the windows uh, and basically barricading himself in from his fans. So I'm sure his tongue is firmly in cheek there because he's not for a second suggesting he's on the same level of artistry as Michael Jackson or George O'Keefe. But in terms of music, of course, I far prefer him to Michael Jackson. Just as a rip-roaring, I've never used that phrase in my life, but a rip-roaring tune that just carries you along. I honestly, for years, thought Neil Young's contribution was the harmonica, but it's actually Warren Zevon playing the harmonica. When Zevon did it himself, he often played solo and he slowed it right down. It was just him, acoustic and harmonica. And it became a dirge. And I really dislike every live version of it I've ever heard. But the studio version, as I say, probably not even top five. I'll edge it into my top three. It's a supreme track. Let's move into the 90s now. And Warren releases 1991's Mr. Bad Example and 1995's Mutineer. Now, both don't do much commercially. His four-year record deal with Giant comes to a close. What are your overall thoughts of Warren's 90s studio releases? Well, obviously, I'm a fan. And there's some of his 90s studio releases that I really think should have captured the public imagination via radio stations or what have you. Mr. Bad Example, this is him. He's now on Giant, as you say. His virgin contract's gone. And even getting on Giant was only done. This is Andrew Slater working hard for him again. I really think he had a real champion in Andrew Slater. He got him onto Virgin. Virgin supported him big time. Uh, but then, you know, he wasn't getting the sales. And Andrew Slater gets him onto Giant. But he does do a wee sneaky. Uh, before we come to Mr. Bad Example, he sells Warren's even to Irvine Azoff, who is starting Giant. 
He says, if you take Warren on, I'll be able to give you this album of Warren and the R.E.M. doing cover songs as well, which was the Hindu Love Gods album that came out in 1990. And if anyone's listening to this and think, oh, Warren's even in the Hindu Love Gods, that sounds great, then my advice is don't, don't go there. I mean, it's an interesting album if you're a real diehard fan like myself, but the, that's it. The best word I can give for it is interesting. It was recorded during the sentimental hygiene sessions. It was recorded when Warren Zeven was sober, but the three members of REM, by their own admission, were drunk. And it was recorded as a bit of fun. And they had no idea that three, four years later it was going to be in record stores. And they weren't happy when it, when it was. However, I think I would maybe say Mr. Bad Example would be another good one to introduce someone unfamiliar with Warren's even. I think it would be a good album to introduce them to him. I think it's a strong album. I do not like the title track. It's kind of like some German jug band poker thing. That's fine. It's a different type of thing they're trying. It just doesn't work for me. I think it goes on too long lyrically. It's Jorge Calderon and Zevon are trying to come up with outrageous things that their Mr. Bad example engage in. And it's like they're trying to outdo each other. And that seems to be the basis of the song. So that one personally doesn't work for me. Susie Lightman is the one I'm going to recommend people go to first if they want to hear some of Mr. Bad example. Apart from being a great tune, I love its creation. Was even taking wee snippets from various sources, so he get he gets a postcard from bassist Bob Glaub, who's in Budapest. He becomes friends with Ray Mancini, who's now in films. And he's shooting the Dirty Dozen, the Fatal Mission, in Zagreb, part of Yugoslavia. And then there's Susie Lightning, which is basically the name of someone warns even sees in the credits of a British horror movie called I Don't Want to Be Born, which came out in 1975. It starred John Collins and Donald Pleasance and listed way, way, way down in the credits as a stripper is someone called Susie Lightning. And I love the way Zeevan's just gathering wee snippets of information from different sources and then he turns them into the lyric of the song. You know, within that, knowing that background, you have the, you have the songwriter at work it's not just a narrative springs instantly to mind. It's you make notes of things and then you later compile them together into one narrative. Musically, I use the phrase ethereal. It's built around a series of keyboard descents. You've got Waddy Wachtel. You've got his guitar flitting in and out of those keyboard descents. I don't want to use the word arabesque again, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a wonderfully arabesque sound. You've got Jeff Percaro again, you've got Bob Glaub, they're the rhythm section, they're keeping it all grounded, while you've got Zeevan and Wachtel doing all this wonderful weightless musical pieces. Uh, it's really quite a transcendent piece of music. I absolutely love it, and I do think it's in my top five as well. It's possibly going to be Susie Lightning, Splendid Isolation, and Desperados Under the Eve. There you are. I've just walked out my top three while talking to you. 1995's Mutineer. Oh. What, what do you think about that one? 
this is an album that sounds as if the budget's been pulled away from under it. Very much a, a homegrown album, which of course is how music was to increasingly, increasingly become with people recording on on computer and so on. But nonetheless, I think it's a, a strong album. It's not as strong as Mr. Bad Example. And if you look at the cast list, you'll notice that we're down on our big guest star names, i.e. Bruce Hornsby. Yep, one of my all-time favourites. Love Bruce Hornsby. Right, so he's there on a couple of tracks. Plays accordion on Uh, Piano Fighter and Monkey Wash, Donkey Rinse. What a title. Yep. Monkey Wash, Donkey Rinse. Well, the, the title or the source of the title is disputed. Zeven, he says the title refers to a monkey he saw in Marrakesh, and I'm quoting Zeven in the book, so inverted commas, had been trained to jerk off a donkey. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> Co-writer Duncan Aldrich, he says, nope, that's a load of rubbish. That's the product of a fertile imagination. But his explanation is he coined the phrase, which he explains was his impression of an REM all-access pass. I have no idea what that even means. Wow. So <laughs> at least I understand what Zeeman's explanation is about. Well, maybe it's like a uh, like a code code word or code words to get backstage or something. Like uh, what, maybe. maybe. What's, what's the password? Monkey wash, donkey <laughs> rinse. Come on in. Well, yeah, possibly. Getting briefly back to the Hindu Love Gods, that album it was released after three years that never should have been released. And Warren's even had it on a cassette tape and he was driving around LA in his car and was playing it. The title he gave the cassette tape was Monkey Wash Donkey Runs. So since he's playing with R.E.M., maybe it did come from the R.E.M. camp. Who knows? But it's like Muhammad's radio. You know, he, he took that title because... Well, he saw a guy dressed up as a Halloween party, dressed up as a sheik, listening to a transistor radio, and he came up with that phrase and thought they sat nice together. Maybe he just came up with monkey wash, donkey rinse, and thought, well, that sits nice together. And he probably also thought, people wonder what the hell that means. Just like sentimental hygiene, what does it mean? So maybe it was never truly meant to be known. There were three singles, Rottweiler Blues, Poisonous, Lookalike, and Mutineer, the title track. Those were three singles from the album. Yeah, all good songs. Uh, the title track was later covered by Bob Dylan. When he heard Zeven was ill, he did three Zeven songs on his set list when he was on whatever part of his never-ending tour. Mutineer was the most recent of them. Poisonous Lookalike, I think, is my, is my pick of the album. It kind of is very lo-fi, but it still matches that sort of college vibe of the late 80s when college students in America were getting into bands like R.E.M. before they became huge, or XCC, or Robin Hitchcock, and people like that. So I think it's got that sort of feel to it. I just think it's a great jangly, not quite power pop, but just a great college radio tune. Piano fighter. It's interesting, and so far as it's very autobiographical, and it basically tells you, you know, a straight story. It doesn't give you the full story. It only takes us up to about the 1970s, but it is very much an autobiography. And mum and dad bought a chickering 
every day I'd sit and play that thing. Uh, relates back to that chickering piano that his dad won way back in Christmas Day, 1956 or whatever it was. So definitely autobiographical. And I don't think you should ever like songs with the word clown in them, but I do like something bad happened to a clown. It's got clever lyrics, it's got clever calliope and other circus noises. Sometimes it sounds very discordant, very out of tune, but all creating a sense of mood. And we don't ever find out what happened to a clown. I'm guessing being Warren's even, his heart was broken because a lot of hearts are broken in Warren's even songs. Someone lost their squirting rose, there's his red nose on the ground. I mean, this is about the most we get about the fate of the clown. But it's a fun tune, and I like it a lot. The other one I'd pick out is The Indifference of Heaven, which is, well, can I use the word magisterial? Well, I just have. Fair you are. Magisterial is out there. It's this big stately tune. The first of many depressing songs about the departure of my faction-trest fiancé and the words of Zeevan and himself. But loads of great lyrics in it. It first appeared on the Learning to Fudge live album. So it actually appeared on a live album before it made its studio debut here on Mutineer. And I love the lyrics, time in my hands, time to kill, blood in my hands and my hands in the till. What a great piece of writing that is. It's both Springsteenish. But it's also, you know, it's got that southern gothic of Flannery O'Connor's great short stories. And Difference of Heaven, Boys Just Look Alike and Something Bad Happened to a Clown would be my picks. The only one I don't like, I think, is Rottweiler Blues. I just don't think it it goes anywhere. Uh, but again, that's strictly personal opinion. He's even said it became the lowest-selling album of his career. And if you take them at face, that means it sold even less than Wanted Dead or Alive. So that shows you how far he's fallen within you know, 15 years. And unlike Dead or Alive, which is really only for real aficionados, I think anyone could listen to Mutineer and find a lot to enjoy there. I think it's a, a strong album. The Booked on Rock podcast will return after this. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Booked on Rock podcast is on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Booked on Rock podcast. On Twitter at Booked on Rock. And on Instagram at Booked on Rock podcast. 2000s Life Will Kill You only sold 30,000 copies despite great reviews, a lot of publicity push, 
what do you think of this album? Had the radio audience lost interest in Warren by then? I think essentially that might be it. But funnily enough, the press weren't allowing you to lose interest. This was just, this album was seemed to be reviewed everywhere here in the UK. I'd read about it, and you know, in the broadsheets like the Guardian newspaper and what have you. It didn't just get reviewed in the music press. Everyone sung its praises. It's another five-year gap, and here he is back with a fantastic comeback album. It's very much similar to Mutineer insofar it's done in a home studio. It's more acoustic, though. Mutineer is more a rock album. I'm not going to say Life Will Kill You is a folk album. It's more an acoustic rock album, I think. I'll settle for that phrase. And it gets so much great reviews and even toured it, as in going beyond the United States. This is the first time he toured Europe in many, many years, apart from one-offs. And it's the first time he toured the UK since 1976, when he was supported in Jackson Brown. He had played some one-off London shows, but for Life Will Kill You, well, I saw him in, here in Glasgow uh, on the Life Will Kill You show. So, obviously, there was a belief that after Artemis had a belief Zeven was worth promoting, and they were supporting him by getting him out there on tour. He was getting lots of great reviews and column inches. When he was playing the tour, he was cropping up in radio shows. He played a really well-known uh, BBC television show over here called The Late Show with Jules Holland, which has been a long-running music show, really renowned for its eclectic selection of guests. He even got a short interview, did two songs, but still nada. Sales didn't really happen at all. It must have been same old song, same old story for Warren Zevon. He must have recognised he's been here so many times. And it must have been really quite soul-destroying for him. Here's this wonderful, wonderful collection of songs. It's recognised by such almost universally. He's getting spots to promote it, and still it does nothing. Which a real shame. You mentioned way back, I was in the house when the house burnt down. But did you say you played it as a DJ when it came out? Yeah, before we started recording, I was telling you, we played it on the station that I worked at here in Connecticut, here in the U.S. And I remember it well because I hadn't heard of Warren Zevon in in, in a long time. And I thought it was cool that we were playing that single. And then there was a lyric that they had to change in order to get on the radio, right? There was an F-bomb. Yeah, that's right. There was an F-bomb in the original lyrics that was removed. An F-bomb. Oh, it was, that's right. It was, an F- it was, uh, was it shit? Yes, it was. <laughs> you could say it here uh, on the podcast. Uh, Couldn't say that on FM radio. You could say it here if you like. Yeah. No, okay. Okay, <laughs> I, was being, I was being careful about it. But yeah, they had to, they had to change that word to get it played. So I presume the version you played back in your DJ days was the so-called clean version. But of course, even was being the... The outraged artist, how how dare they change my lyrics until someone pointed out that even Alan Ginsberg toned his work down for radio. And I thought, oh, well, that's okay then, so let's change it. Uh, I've no idea what it was changed to, though. Obviously, the album has the original version. But getting back to what I said earlier about first getting into ones even and song titles, looking at the back album cover and all being intrigued by song titles, I was in the house when the house burnt down. How brilliant a song title is that? You know, it just instantly catches my imagination. 
anyway, instantly took me back to 1978 when this came out in the year 2000. This It's a song I'm going to hear because I'm buying it anyway. But the title would have grabbed me in as a first time. Looking at that in a record shop, that would have grabbed me in, uh, hooked me and grabbed me on in. We do have the strong folky element insofar as it's driven by acoustic guitar and harmonica. But I do argue that thanks to Oh, I need to check his name. He played with Alice Cooper and Bob Dylan, Winston Watson, Winston Watson on drums and percussion. But him and Jorge Calderon, Zevon's long-time collaborator on bass, also percussion. I think the pair of them keep it rocky, so Zevon might be going for folky with this particular track, but the rhythm section of Calderon and Watson keep it nice and rocky, and I like it as a mix. There's a nice timbre to not just I was in the house when the house burnt down, but much of what's on this album. And another title that dragged me in is the title track, which is second up, Life Will Kill You. And again, if I can quote, it's the kingdom of the spiders. It's the empire of the ants. You need a license to walk around downtown. You need a permit to dance. No idea what that means, but I do know by the very fact it mentions a couple of old nature strike back sci-fi horror films from the 1970s. You know, I would be hooked already. Seeing those lyrics, I would want to hear that song. And the song doesn't disappoint. It's a song about death, but bizarrely, as I say in the book, tell Laura I love her. It's just like it's taken a realistic approach that death is part of life and it will get to all of us, whether you're a lowly rock and roll star like Warren's even, or the President of the United States. And it's just uh, an acceptance about the inevitability of death. So there's nothing morose or grim about it. It's death as seen through a sprightly piano-driven pop song, and it's great. He addresses his mortality again on the next album, 2002's My Ride's Here, which is it's kind of eerie. He wasn't diagnosed with cancer until late 2002, but was he experiencing symptoms during the recording of those two albums, or was this just a guy who admittedly was surprised he lived as long as he did living the lifestyle he lived? Well, no, it's purely coincidence. I think maybe he just found himself setting off in a, a kind of what became death trilogy. And it just so happened that the first two parts of it came out before his diagnosis. So I think maybe he was just aware of his his own mortality and maybe he was just aware that he he had escaped, he had dodged a bullet considering his former lifestyle. And now here he was clean and sober and willing to, you know, going to the gym and enjoying life to the full. It's kind of eerie. Oh yeah, it's definitely definitely there's a, a prescience to it. But definitely also, coincidence, I mean, the cover to my rights here, though it's not obvious, it's him sitting in the back of a hearse. So again, there's that. A, a oh, that's a hearse to, there that he's in? Oh, wow. Yeah, I don't, I don't recognize it as such, but all the, the publicity material at the time um, suggested that I, that's what it was. 
So again, that wasn't unknown he was diagnosed. He doesn't, it's not obvious it's a hair, so why it was done, I don't know. But, well, it was done because it fit his theme of death. And this this was a theme that obviously he'd worked with all his life, but was particularly homing in on now, perhaps as he got older, but not realising he wasn't going to get much older. So yeah, that is all coincidence. And it is on my rides here where Letterman, David Letterman appears on, 2002's My Rides Here. Yeah, so by now they've become a mutual fan club. Zeevan has appeared on the Letterman show many, many times. He's filled in for Paul Schaefer, who's the band leader on Letterman shows when Schaefer's on holiday or doing other things. Zeevan has filled in. So these guys are buddies and... And it says here Letterman was credited on the album with backing vocals. Um, yes, but it is only in one song. Just one song. Uh, what song is he uh, on? As Hit Somebody, the hockey song. Oh, Hit Somebody, the hockey song. That's a great... Hit the writer is, the hockey. The writer of the song is Warren and Mitch Album, the sports writer? Yep. Tuesdays with Maury as well. Now, this is Warren Zevon's literary album, if I can give a wee bit of background. Sure. He decided that for whatever reason, he wanted to collaborate with non-songwriters, with other writers. Uh, and the reason, I can give, tell you the reason, Warren Zevon thought that writing lyrics was the hardest part of the job. He really, really struggled with it. It's hard to believe when you look at some of the lyrics that he actually did write. But he claimed many times in several interviews I've read or heard him saying that. So he had this idea that he'd put the feelers out. By this time, he had a lot of friends in the literary community, and he would put the feelers out and see if any of them wished to co-write with them. He would do the music, and they would do the lyrics, or he would work with them on the lyrics, whatever suited them. And he did get some takers. If you go through the songwriting credits... You've got Basket Case. You've got Carl Hyessen. Is that how that's pronounced? Yeah, your guess well, is as good as mine. I've seen that name many times. You know, I worked at a bookstore, too, so I remember seeing that name a lot. But yeah. I believe it's Hyacin. Well, I'll go with, we'll go with that then. Uh, so he's a Florida-based crime writer, and I don't know if he still does it, but newspaper writer as well. And Zeevan was a big fan. And if you go to a song called Millie Goddy's Creeks, you've got the Irish poet Paul Muldoon. And I actually think Paul Muldoon might actually have later won a Nobel Prize for literature, neither here nor there. But, you know, it's a big name. Pulitzer Prize for poetry. Poetry. Pulitzer Prize, not Nobel, right? Thank you. Hunter S. Thompson, longtime friend of Warren's even. He does. He's only, I think, co-write with them in a song called You're a Whole Different Person When You're Scared. And getting back to where we started, it is indeed Mitch Alburn that does co-writes Hit Somebody, the hockey song. I think that was Paul Muldoon crops up later in the title track. And that's it. So he managed to secure four big names. I think anyone at Reds would be familiar with most of them. So that was quite a coup. I'm not sure it's his best album, though. It's got its moments, but I, I think it's pro- probably the least in the Zeevan collection, minus Wanted Dead or Alive. And I really, despite David Letterman's appearance, 
you know, I, I personally really dislike it. I think the song isn't particularly interesting. It's a comedic song about a hockey player who plays the part of a goon or, or an enforcer, uh, but all he wants to do is score a goal and eventually he does, and I'll leave it there. And Letterman's contribution is when we get to what passes as a chorus in the background, he'll shout, hit somebody several times. And it's not that great. So it's like him and Letterman probably got together and thought it was a fantastic idea, but I'm not sure how many other listeners would. I would point out the title track, though, My Rides Here. This is the second collaboration with Paul Muldoon. It's far more, in my opinion, far more successful than McGillicuddy's Reeks. That's a mountain range in, in the Republic of Ireland. My right here, lyrically adventurous, kind of depicts 17th century and 19th century poets like John Milton and Byron and Shelley as outlaws in Texas or something. Who knows what it's all about, but it's absolutely wonderful. I do think it musically, it plays, you know, it does pay, it does owe a debt to Born to Run, Bruce Springsteen. It's not identical, but I can see certain things there. And I don't know if it's coincidence or not, but the first concert was even played after hearing of Zevon's, sorry, the Springsteen played after hearing of Zevon's death. He played My Rides Here, but as a slowed down, stripped back, really wonderful version. So by one more suggestion for the Spotify, it's on the, the tribute album, Enjoy Every Sandwich, you'll get that Bruce Springsteen version of My Rides Here. And it's actually hearing them both back to back. There are two artists doing the same song, completely different ways. But musically, I do think there's a, there's a wee nod to Born to Run by Bruce Springsteen. But no... For me, it was it was a filler album. It wasn't nearly, even though it took two years to make, it wasn't nearly in the same class as Life Will Kill You. Fortunately, though, the album coming up, The Wind. The Wind, Warren Zevon's final studio album, released August 2003. The first thing that struck me, Peter, on this, you look at the album cover, you look at Warren on this album cover and look at him nearly 25 years earlier on Excitable Boy. And you look at a difference in a... There's a guy who's been through a lot. Different yeah. expression on his face, less mystery to it. He's just looking right at you saying, this is it. This is my last... Yeah. My last hurrah. My swan yeah. song. Yeah, what do you think of the Wind album? I think it was a really strong album. I've got to be honest. There is the risk or the worry that it could have descended into mockishness or some sort of cod philosophy. But he avoids that entirely. And a lot of the time, I think he's just... Not all songs deal with his upcoming demise. He's recording this album while he's sick, while he's dying. He knows this while he's recording it. And a selfless act urges his manager to promote the publicity of this death, this impending death, so that the album sales could bring financial support to his family. And that's what happens, right? That's right. It's a strong album. Lots of good songs on it. But one thing that isn't strong is Warren leaving himself. Now, I don't know if you're aware, but there was a documentary actually made by VH1. Remember it well. Yeah. So you see what he looks like when he's making this. You can see how weak he is. 
later on you can hear the weakness of his voice. So knowing all that and knowing what he was going through mentally and physically, then it's as it's a remarkably strong album to end his career on. It's not his strongest. As I say later in the book, I find it hard to place the album. I think it stands on its own because of the circumstances behind its creation. But I think there's lots of great tracks on there. I do think there's some filler. Party for the rest of the night, I think, is a filler of a song. But where, for me, he absolutely excels. I'm coming back to the ballads. Please Stay would be my top pick from this particular album. I say in the book, it's not only the saddest song on an album inevitably infused with sadness, but it must be a shoo-in for one of the saddest songs ever written. It's a heartbreaker, just as in earlier songs to do with loss, in this case, loss of love, as opposed to loss of life. You know, with Linda Ronstad being a ghostly spectral presence in the vocals on Please Stay, we've got Emmylou Harris, and her voice is... Wonder it's ethereal at the best of times, but it's wonderfully so here. And then we've got Gil Bernal again, hope the pronunciation's right, but he delivers a really emotive sax solo. So please stay, it's a ballad, it's a torch song. Zeven's voice is weak, and that just makes it all the more poignant. There's a bit where he just breathes the phrase, Oh, sweet darling, part sigh, part prayer. And it's just heartbreakingly beautiful. It's a mournful song, yet amazingly, like the rest of the album, it's never ever maudlin. And if we stay with maudlin or potential, being potentially maudlin, you know, he covers knocking on heaven's door. I think he said he essentially did this as an acknowledgement of Bob Dylan playing three of his songs after Zeven announced his illness. Uh, but there was no real plan for putting it on the album. It happened to be around Billy Bob Thornton's house one night. A whole bunch of musicians were there. And the idea was suggested. And Zeven said, yeah, let's do it. At first, people thought he was kidding. But he absolutely was not. And so they did it. Jorge Calderon had to go out to his car, dig out a CD of Bob Dylan's greatest hits, so that they could actually read the lyrics. And again... What we have with Zeven's approach here, whereas in the original version of Knocking on Heaven's Door, Dylan's played a fictional character. Zeven's very much himself. He really is at the stage of Knocking on Heaven's Door, but at the same time, he never allows him. It never sounds as if he's feeling down about it. It sounds as if there's a finality or an acceptance about it. And the lack of mockishness that comes across in the song is reinforced by some of the great players on it. There's a couple of names. Tommy Shaw of Sticks is on acoustic guitar. Gives the whole song an absolutely lovely, warm feel. And there's some exceptional playing by a couple of players I'm not familiar with. They're regularly played with Billy Bob Thornton. They were called Randy Mitchell and Brad Davis, playing slide guitar and electric guitar, respectively. Uh, You've got Steve Gorman of the Black Crows on drums. Jorge Calderon as his rhythm section partner, and John Waits and Billy Bob Thornton and almost everyone else doing the backing vocals, and it ends up being this glorious, almost triumphant song, rather than being morose or gloomy or anyway introspective about looking at death. So, yeah, 
I think it's a wonderful song. It's one of the ones of the album to check out. Like, please stay. It has a cold look, a cold look at looking at death in the eye, but without getting emotional necessarily. There is an element of fear in both songs. And please stay when he says the oh sweet darling, you get it there. But at one point when we're on to the final chorus of knocking on heaven's door, he hears even pleading for the doors to open up for him. And there is that element of fear coming across in his voice. I might be reading that into it. He might be acting it, but let's face it, considering where the guy was, who wouldn't be scared? But he, he knows. I mean, this album came out two weeks before he died. He finished recording it, I think, the previous October. And there was a few wee bits and pieces to be done post-production sort of thing. So he was very weak and very ill at the time. So they would be my two. They would be my two go-to songs. There, please stay. Any ballad actually on the wind uh, is up there with his even's best. But please stay. It's just heartbreakingly gorgeous. And knocking on heaven's door shouldn't work, but it really does. Uh, so a testament to the players. And there was all they were at a party, so there's a certain ebullience in their approach to the song that stops it becoming morose or gloomy, as I said earlier. And we lost Warren Zevon on September 7th of 2003. He was only 56. Died of cancer. I think it was in the lungs. Yep. Earned the respect of his fellow musicians, who are themselves among the most respected, yet he's not, not even nominated for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Why? Well, number one, I don't know what the criteria of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is, but it's a strange organisation. Uh, I mean, we were talking before we come on air, came on air about how much we like Kiss. How many years did it take for them to get nominated? You know, is it 20, after, 25 years after your first record? So they were long after it. Even then, only four members, whereas you'd like every member of the, the Grateful Dead uh, getting in when they were nominated. But I think with the case of Warren's even, I don't know if this plays a part, but a big player in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is Jan or Jan Wenner, who is the Rolling Stone guy. And as we've said earlier, he decided, based on Zeven's behaviour at a Bruce Springsteen concert, never to give him any more column inches. So maybe there was some long-lasting grudge or something going on there. Or maybe it's just down to the fact, and this would almost be fair to an extent if the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is based on sales, then maybe it's based on sales and even he's a cult artist. He had a brief moment, but he definitely was a cult artist. However, I'm thinking that through, Eric, out loud. My previous book was on Mark Bolin and T-Rex, and they were never big sellers in America, but they got into the Hall of Fame two years ago or thereabouts. So it isn't based on sales. So I really think it's down to the whim of the committee. But hopefully you'll get there one day. Yeah, could be some politics involved. Because among, not only is he respected among his fellow musicians, but also critically acclaimed. So that's the other thing too, which is yeah. just, it makes it even more surprising. So there's something, there's some reason for it. There's got to be. Warren Zevon, every album, every song, it's out now through Sonic Bond Publishing. It's available through burningshed.com. 
if you live in the UK or through the usual outlets, including Amazon, if you live in the US. And you can also visit sonicbondpublishing.uk for more info. All right, Peter, thanks so much. This was great. Cheers, Eric. One last note, guys. Peter mentioned early in the interview the Lime and Sabelle song that became a minor hit back in 1966. It's called Follow Me. It's not on Spotify, so you won't find it on the show notes playlist. But I did include a link to the song on YouTube, so check that one out. A very interesting early, early era Warren Zevon song. I'm Eric Sanich. Thanks for listening. Hope to have you back again next time for another episode of Booked on Rock. That's it. It's in the books. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.